Well, Mariah Foster was our scripture reader, but she has a conflict today, and so I'm going to read the scripture, and it's in uh, Romans chapter 2, New Testament letter of Paul to the Romans. In your pew Bible, it's on page 1746. We're in a sermon series in the book of Romans. We are at this point in the second chapter. Paul is building a case. He's arguing for our need for a Savior. And he begins here in chapter 2. Now you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. This is the word of the Lord. And there is an outline in your bulletin if you care to follow it as we progress through this passage and continue to progress through Paul's um, arguments. Now when I was growing up back in the years when television was in black and white, One of the TV programs that intrigued me was Perry Mason. 
How many of you remember Perry Mason? Okay, some of you. Um, I, I, as a kid, I couldn't always understand what was going on, but I enjoyed trying to follow the court cases where Perry Mason was defending someone. And I think there's even reruns being shown now of Perry Mason. Today, I enjoy in color uh, the TV program Law and Order with prosecutor Jack McCoy seeking to bring justice where there has been injustice and the law has been broken. And even as an adult, I cannot always understand what's going on, but I enjoy trying to figure out and follow the legal arguments that they make and the evidence building to, to bring charges and bring justice to lawbreakers. And maybe this explains why I like the book of Romans in the New Testament. Paul's letter reads like a court case. Paul is the prosecutor, and the accused are all of humanity. The case in question is whether human beings are innocent or guilty before God. The charge is that we have deliberately and recklessly rejected our Creator and we have brought death and destruction into His creation. Now last week in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul unfolds the evidence of human guilt. He describes how humans suppress the truth about God. And then after they suppress it, they exchange it for a lie. And then, destructively, that lie is lived out. The punishment, the sentence, is the wrath of God, which here he says, God gives us over to the consequences of our rebellion and our idolatry. This morning, in chapter 2, these first 16 verses, he continues building his case of humankind's guilt. In chapter 1, he exposes the radical, rebellious uh, denial of God and the truth um, that leads to, to open godlessness and blatant wickedness. In chapter 2, Paul builds a case against people who we might call respectable sinners. People who are very moral, very decent people, and who are actually critical of the people in chapter 1 and condemn those rebels. The group in chapter 2 he's speaking about are self-righteous and judgmental. They feel they are superior to the godless and wicked in chapter 1. But what Paul is doing ultimately is building a case that all human beings stand in need of a Savior, the supposedly good as well as the bad and the ugly. His argument here is that those who are self-righteous who judge others are also guilty before God and stand under the judgment of God. In the first four verses, he claims that God's judgment is inescapable for everyone. 
Verse 3, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Now the word judgment there means to condemn. It's different than discerning what's right and wrong. It's a condemnation. It's a passing a verdict. And the Bible says nobody has the right to condemn other people. Only God can do that. Now we can distinguish between what's right and wrong and discern that, but we don't get to condemn it. He goes on to describe four characteristics of those who do that, who are self-righteous. The person who thinks that compared to those people over there, I, I'm good. He says the self-righteous are those who accuse others and excuse themselves. Verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the others, you are condemning yourself. For you also pass, who pass judgment are doing the same things. Now it's typical of human nature to be unrealistic about ourselves and to be critical of others. And this is called hypocrisy. We tend to take our sins and relabel them. Oh, I'm not gossiping. I'm just sharing a concern. Or, I'm not lazy. I'm just mellow. You know, we, we sometimes take what we judge in other people, but when it comes to us, we, we redefine it. And this leads to another characteristic of self-righteousness, and that is to measure ourselves by the wrong standard. Verse 2, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Well, how often do we judge ourselves by comparing ourselves to people whose sin is worse or more public than ours? We maximize other people's faults and we minimize our own. But God judges by truth. God himself, his holiness, his righteousness, this is the ultimate standard. And we can see those standards revealed in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus spoke in Matthew 5 through 7. When Paul uses the word the law, and he does it quite often in this passage, he's talking basically about the Ten Commandments. What Jesus does, he takes those Ten Commandments and he applies them and takes them right into our hearts. He takes them internally. He says, hey, you guys have heard you're not to commit murder. But I tell you that whoever is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Or you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his, in his heart. So Jesus goes to the spirit of the law. He takes it to another level. He brings it to the human heart. And another problem with being self-righteous is we think when we judge others, that puts us in a better position. Verse 3, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them 
and yet you do the same thing, do you not think that you will escape God's judgment? So we tend to judge others because it makes us feel better. It, it gives us an attitude of superiority. Let's, let's look at an example. Let's say you and I both owe money to the same bank or the same person. And I'm in debt $20 million. And you're in debt $10 million. So you say, looking at me, well, you're in much more debt than I am. Therefore, I'm free of debt. Does that make sense? Of course not. But his sin is worse than mine. I've never done anything like that. But does that wipe out your sin? No. God does not grade on the curve. And another characteristic is we misinterpret God's blessing on our life. Verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? The misinterpretation is when everything's going good for us, when we feel God is blessing us, then we start to think, hey, I'm good. I'm, I deserve God's blessing. I must be okay. I must be superior. The, the self-righteous do not realize that all of those blessings come from the grace of God. They're not deserved. If God gave us what we deserved, we wouldn't even be here. God blesses life even when there's sin. And the purpose of His goodness, Paul says, is to lead us to repentance, to motivate us to change. The patience of God leads to repentance. And that's something for us to learn from. People are not going to repent when we criticize them and condemn them and put them down. When we realize how good God is to us and how little we deserve it, we should fall on our knees and say, God, I'm so grateful for what you've done in my life. You, you have not given me what I deserve. You've given me kindness and given me grace. What Paul is challenging here is the myth of moral superiority. The respectable sinner is as guilty as the rebellious sinner. Nobody escapes God's judgment. But Paul's not finished with his courtroom argument. His second point and emphasis is that God's judgment is righteous. His judgments are right. They're justified. Verses 5 through 11. As I said earlier, God's judgment is based on truth. Not the stuff that human beings make up and claim is good and is bad. And judgment will be based on the truth about us. About you and about me. Paul says God knows every thought. Every attitude, every word, every action, and he will judge us on that basis. God being God has the right to call us to account for the gift of life he has given us. 
Now what we're talking about here is the final judgment. In chapter 1, Paul said the wrath of God is being revealed now. When God gives us over to the consequences of our sin. But here he's expanding the idea of judgment to the final evaluation at the resurrection of the dead. And friends, the date has been set. It's on God's calendar. We don't know what it is, but he does. And each of us are going to stand before him and give an account for every word, every thought, every action. And none of us will be able to say God isn't fair because his judgment is based on truth. Hebrews 4.13 says, And nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Verses 5 through 11 give us specific examples of what we may be judged for. This is not a complete list, but it talks about self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Stubborn, unrepentant hearts, our deeds and behaviors, our rejection of the truth and following evil, the kind of yes, but things we talked about last time, secret thoughts and motives, and just plain disobedience to the divine law. You know, God, what God has done here, He's revealed to us what's going to be on the final test. You know, I always appreciated it when teachers and professors tell the class, this is what's going to be on the final exam. This is what we're going to cover. And then you know what's most important to study. When no guidelines are given, you feel, at least I did, overwhelmed and stressed. What's going to be on the test? What do I need to prepare for? Well, friends, God does not say there's going to be a final exam at the end of your life, but you aren't going to know what it's going to be. We're told. We're told we're going to be evaluated and judged on our character and our conduct, our speech and our attitudes, our, our deeds and our motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of men's hearts. God will not only judge what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. What's in our hearts, our motives, our intentions. And we will not be judged according to what other people have done. We can't stand there and say, well, what about them? And what did they, you know, look what they did. You're going to be accountable. I'm going to be accountable for myself, for yourself. And we can't blame anyone else either. Maybe we've been hurt in life. We've been traumatized. But we, we will still be held personally accountable for how we responded. And, and there will be no excuses. God's judgment is inescapable. And God's judgment is righteous. And then third and finally, God's judgment is impartial. It's impartial. Verses 12 through 16. 
One of the sad realities of any judicial system is that people with a lot of money and resources and power, they can use those things to avoid justice. They can afford better lawyers. They can bribe judges. They can use who they know and use their power to, to gain leverage in the legal system. Those who are poor, who have less resources, don't have the same advantages. But at the throne of God, at the throne of God's judgment, no one will have the power to manipulate God and bribe their, their way out and escape justice. There will be no favoritism with the Creator. He will judge impartially. Now what Paul does in this kind of complicated passage is he raises the question, is it fair that people who never heard the law of God, who, who never heard the Ten Commandments, who never heard all the good things about God and the principles and the laws of the Bible, can they be judged the same way as those who do have the Bible, who do have the Ten Commandments? The Jewish people possess the written law, the Old Testament, which they hear and read in synagogue every Sabbath while Gentiles do not have the written law or scripture. But what Paul does, he, he makes, he says there's no fundamental distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the moral knowledge that they have or the sins that they commit or the guilt that they incur and the judgment they will receive. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So what that means is each group, Jew, Gentile, will be judged according to the knowledge that they have. Whether it's the revealed law of the Bible or what God has shown them in their hearts. The Jewish people will be judged according to their knowledge of the law, and the Gentile will be judged by what they know. And Paul says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, the written law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the written law. They show that the requirements of the law, listen to this, are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Here's the deal. By the very fact of being a human being made in the image and likeness of God Almighty, we have a conscience and that conscience gives us a knowledge of God's truth and God's standards internally in our hearts. Now you can crush that conscience, but it is there. So people who have never read the Bible, there are people who have never read the Ten Commandments who don't steal, 
who don't commit adultery, who don't murder, they honor their parents, they recognize the sanctity of human life, they're loyal in their marriages, they're honest, they speak the truth. God creates us with a self-conscious moral compass. Now some have a fuller knowledge of God's law in their hands, the Jews, and they can read it, and others have a level of knowledge written in their hearts, in their conscience, and God will judge each according to the level of knowledge that they have. So God is fair. God is even-handed and impartial. This is Paul's argument in the courtroom toward and regarding the self-righteous and the respectable sinner. He's making the case that all human beings are guilty, that they're condemned, and that God's judgments will be fair and just. And what Paul is doing is trying to show us our need, our need for the grace of God. And he's preparing the Roman church to hear the gospel and to understand it. On Judgment Day, nobody is going to be able to say, my conduct was sinless, my conscience is perfectly clear, my character spotless. The final exam will come at the final judgment, and we're not going to pass. We're all going to fail. But there's hope. In, in, in Revelation 20, John has a vision of the final judgment. And here's the picture he paints. He says, And I saw the dead, great and small. I saw them standing before the throne, and the books, plural, were open. There more than one book. And another book was open, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a description of the final day of judgment. And friends, how do you make sure your name is in the book of life? Well, last week, Norm shared with us the good news in a nutshell from John 3.16. And here it is. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ comes to deliver us from judgment. He wants to be our Savior, not our judge. He did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And it's up to you and up to me what he will be. Will he be a savior or will he be a judge? And each of us has to settle that issue between ourselves and our God. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's hard for us to hear these words that reveal our sin and our condition before you. We want to think well of ourselves and that we're pretty good. 
And there is goodness in us because of your image. But Lord, help us to honestly reckon with the sin and the idolatry and all the ways that sin's expressed within us. And we know that Paul isn't done either. But Lord, as we do, may we experience the depth of grace and how deeply you love us and how profound the cross of Jesus is. So may those two things go hand in hand as we discuss these things and have them revealed to us that you are lovingly drawing us to yourself. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.